Good evening. It's seven o'clock and time now for In Context with Patrick Boynes. Well, good evening and it's great to have you with us. Uh, Welcome once again to In Context, the radio show where we're looking at the scriptures and where we'll always aim to look at things within their context. You can find us here on internet radio by going to truthfm.uk and clicking on the link to listen. Or you can find us on the truth.fm app. Just look for truthfm.uk when you are there. But again, if you're with us tonight, then you must have found your way in somehow or other. So jolly good to have you here with us once more. And I'm terribly sorry I wasn't able to be with you last Monday evening. I had some unexpected health issues which seem now to be moving in a much more positive direction. So here we are. My name is Patrick Boynes. I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He's my teacher and I'm, uh, well, I'm learning to follow him throughout every moment of life's journey. And we are on a journey ourselves uh, here on Monday evenings at seven o'clock in context as we journey through the writings of Luke. Last time we were together, we looked at what is generally known as the prologue to his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, and we were introduced to Luke himself, to Theophilus, um, the chap to whom he was writing, and we briefly considered some of the significant themes that run through these books. But it's time to begin to explore the main text this evening, and the main text begins with what are often referred to as the infancy narratives. Now, these infancy narratives essentially cover the first two chapters of the book, chapters which on this occasion I think we can reasonably say are well divided. The narrative begins immediately after the prologue that we have looked at, and it continues past the infancy of Jesus and into what I suppose today we might call his adolescence. Well, the narratives record the infancies of John and of Jesus. Uh, If you were to go to the text, which you may very well be doing at the end of chapter one, as we have it, we'll find the words and the child, he's referring there to John, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And then the second chapter ends with these words. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. So, well divided there, this, uh, these infancy narratives, chapter 1, essentially looking at that of John, and chapter 2, looking at that of 
Jesus. And the style of these two chapters differs from the rest of the book. The style is a little bit like some of the historic narratives that we find within the Septuagint. That's the uh, the name given to um, the, the the Greek translation of the uh, the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. More of that some other time, I'm sure. And we we. we we see this difference in style in the way that uh, certain individuals are described in terms of their righteousness and their obedience to the law. And we also see this in the nature of events recorded, for example, the inability of Elizabeth to bear children, the, the visits from the angels to announce births and what have you. Well, in this sense, the these infancy narratives, they provide a, an excellent connection with the past history of Israel, looking forward to restoration following a period of relative silence. And so Luke very much continues the biblical narrative of the history of God among his people, as had been left off several hundred years earlier. And as we turn to the text, the first thing that we see is Luke setting things in their context. He begins with the words, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, Luke is certainly a master storyteller. He's a, uh, he's a, he's a first-rate theologian, but he's also every bit as much an historian and sets his narrative within a, a framework of world events. And in all of this, we must never forget that all Scripture is breathed out by God. But God uses the character of individuals and the, the abilities he has given to them in recording Scripture within the context of human relationships. This Herod is the so-called King Herod. Uh, the Roman Senate appointed him king of Judea, officially commencing his reign in 37 BC, and he ruled until his death in 4 BC. His kingdom was fairly extensive. It consisted not only of Judea, but it also included Samaria, Galilee, Perea, Trachonitis... Uh, and uh, his father, Antipater, was an Idumean from, from Eden who had converted to Judaism. But it must be said that Herod's Judaism seems to have been more political than anything else. And he certainly wasn't altogether popular with the locals there in uh, Judea. 
Well, although the name of the city of Jerusalem does not appear in the narrative until after the birth of Jesus, the initial action begins at the very heart of the city, within the holy place of the temple itself. And this is certainly not insignificant. Beginning in Jerusalem, the heart of the nation of Israel, Luke's work eventually concludes in the city of Rome, at the heart of the Roman Empire. And this is certainly deliberate. As as Luke traces the, the plan of God to bring salvation to all, to bring the message of Jesus to the very heart of the Gentile world. So let's read the text for this evening, um, one that we prepared earlier, uh, but we'll read from the the uh, setting uh, there in the days of Herod. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and 
unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. I must say, they sound like an awfully nice couple, don't they? This Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both of them were descendants of Aaron, both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord, and both were advanced in years, which means that they weren't quite as young as the rest of us. You know, there's a great deal we could say about what it meant to be a priest of the temple in Jerusalem, and maybe we'll say more at another time. But even though Zechariah was a priest, it is quite plausible that this was the first and possibly only time he would get to play a part in the daily offering by going into the holy place of the temple. It's estimated that there were in the region of 18,000 priests at this time, divided into 24 divisions or sections. Each of these divisions served for one week, twice every year, with priests being selected by lot for particular tasks. Incidentally, when we get into the second volume of Luke's writings, we'll note another lottery taking place near the beginning of that book. We'll come to that eventually, I'm sure. Zechariah is chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Well, there were two times of daily offering, one around about nine o'clock in the morning and the other um, around about three o'clock in the afternoon. And in light of there having been such a large crowd present, it's often thought that this was perhaps the afternoon or evening uh, offering. Well, whilst he was there, Zechariah in the temple, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, there are a number of times in the Hebrew scriptures where an angel appears to announce the birth of a significant figure, but this is somewhat unusual in that it is the father and not the mother who has received the message. And did you know Luke speaks of angels more than any other gospel writer? Well, you do now. Well, Zechariah is afraid. 
though he has no need to be, but he's afraid. The angel, the, the messenger of God, delivers the message, and what a delightful message it was. Not only was Zechariah and Elizabeth to have joy and gladness at the birth of a son, but many would rejoice and I suppose one can only imagine the speculation among the crowd gathered outside the temple over the months to follow in light of what was about to happen. This would be an occasion they would not forget. You know, they'd be telling each other, remember that time by the temple when the priest came out? And uh, Well, this child, this child was to be great before the Lord. Later, Luke will record Jesus saying, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So, yes, indeed, he was to be great before the Lord. But there is more. What is said next is perhaps particularly striking. The angel says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Well, again, we're taken back to the role of the Spirit of God among the prophets of old. Only here it appears to be something even bigger than that. Luke will speak a great deal about the Holy Spirit, particularly in these opening chapters, and certainly throughout his second volume. He's certainly a, a very significant player in the mission of God is the Spirit of God. And the mission of God for John will be one of bringing the people of God back to him, just like the prophets of old. And I wonder whether we sometimes lose sight of John as being a prophet like those of old, as of course we meet him in the pages of the New Testament scriptures as opposed to those of the old. But his is very much a mission to the children of Israel, to turn the hearts of a remnant who were yet to listen to the voice of God. And the mission of reconciliation will spread far and wide, even to the restoration of healthy family relationships. This was to be a mission of restoration reaching to the very heart of Jewish society. Well, what happens next is really rather bizarre. I, I know that Zechariah's response indicated a lack of belief, but, well, which of us wouldn't have done the same under the same circumstances? But nevertheless, his incredulity led him to be struck dumb until the day the child would be born. And this essentially introduces the theme of, of promise and fulfilment to be seen so often in Luke's writings. So whilst all of this is going on within the temple itself, the people outside are waiting for Zechariah to reappear. Well, you can almost hear the crowd talking among themselves and, you know, they're wondering what is taking him so long in the temple.
It may be that the people were concerned for the safety of Zechariah, understanding that the holiness of God made it difficult for anyone to remain in his presence for any length of time. Perhaps they feared the very worst. But then, eventually, he came out. And you can hear the crowd cheering. Well, maybe. And why not? I can't imagine I might not have wanted to cheer under, under such circumstances. Usually, it should be said. Usually, after emerging from the temple, the priest would offer some sort of prayer. But Zechariah was unable to do that. He couldn't speak even a, 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 a single word. And I wonder if there isn't perhaps a degree of humour here. Uh, but certainly there is a recognition that something very significant had taken place. But one finds it hard to believe that such an incident would not have been remembered for a very long time. So already, at such an early stage as this, the people were being made aware that something completely different was about to take place. And that, as you know, is the sound of the mission bell, meaning it's our mission segment for the evening and time to consider what implications for mission there might be in the passage we're looking into each Monday evening. And remember, when we think of mission, we want to always be thinking first of the mission of God and then to consider our place within that. And as we've probably said before, and I suspect we may say again, it's not the people of God who have a mission, it's the mission of God that has a people. And here in the text that we've been looking at this evening, the presence of mission could hardly be more evident. And as I was looking through it and all different kinds of implications, missional implications, perhaps a key phrase within this text is that spoken by the angel Gabriel. When he says to Zechariah, as he stands there dumbfounded within the, the holy place in the temple, as the angel says, I, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Here was a most decisive act of mission, an act of sending into the world, into the very heart of the temple in Jerusalem, a messenger from God to make known the first good news the nation had heard for many a century. I was sent to speak, the messenger said. The Vulgate translates that as Missus Sumloki. 
There's that missus, that mission, that sending, that God sending his messenger into the world. For God is always a sending God. And uh, as he sends us today into the worlds in which we live, well, finally here, finally on this occasion, the lengthy silence has been shattered by the sending of the angel Gabriel. And we'll say a little bit more of this next week, perhaps, Lord willing. But I sense there must have been immense excitement in the heavens at the sending of Gabriel into the temple, signifying the start of uh, what was to be the uh, uh, the the culmination of the work of God in his Christ. But here's the irony. If only Zechariah could have burst forth from the temple to tell the waiting crowds what was about to happen, if only, but he couldn't. That privilege belonged to his yet unconceived son, Mm, he would burst upon the scene uh, by the Jordan and uh, um, have much, much to say concerning the good news. Well, here's a lesson for us in all of this. Here's a lesson for us. Just like Zechariah, we might prepare to serve God in some particular fashion or another. You know, maybe uh, maybe we have in our minds just what it is that God would have us to do. And you can sense the excitement. If this was the first and maybe the only, certainly one of the very, very few times that Zechariah would have served in such a fashion, you can imagine the excitement and the, the responsibility that was upon him. But like Zechariah, we too must be prepared to expect the unexpected. Who knows what God might have in mind for us, for you? One way or another, he will use us to help fulfill his mission for mankind. But it may not necessarily be in the way that we have anticipated. So, may we be ready to serve. May we never be found to be faithless, but may we be ready to serve in whatever way will bring glory and honour to God. So, as we come to the end of this week's edition of In Context, why don't you let us know your thoughts? Um, you can message us on Facebook. Look out for the truthfm.uk page there. Or you can always tweet us at truthfm.uk. And one of these days you'll be able to email us once we get an, ad uh, an email address sorted and the, uh, the boffins are still at work in that department. But I'd very much like to hear from you. 
Um, drop me a line. Feel free to ask any questions, make any comments, and yeah, we can read some out in future programs. I'd uh, I'd very much like that. But until then, uh, let me wish you God's eternal blessings. May He bless each one of us, so that we might be a blessing to those among whom we live. Thank you for being with us this evening.